Hello, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Kleber, your host, and with me today, your co-host, Wailu. Hello, how are you doing? Hey, good. How's your weekend? Starting yeah, off well? Oh, uh, yeah, it's been really cold, though. So you can see my massive jumper that I'm wearing. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's getting very yeah. cold here, so. And then we got Caleb Wells. Are you hey, flooding hey. away there, Caleb? It's it's pretty nasty down here. It's been a very wet spring, and Baton Rouge got destroyed, for lack of a better word, earlier this week. Lots of flooding. New Orleans, right, we're kind of used to it. <laughs> so it's, it's been very wet, but it's all right. We're, we're good. We're safe. So. All right, good. Good, good, good. All right, I guess today, Garl Uriazarian. Welcome, Garl. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Thank hey, you for hey. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. We'll so see Garl, if you invite we, me back after this. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are you going to do? <laughs> Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself first, uh, just how you got into development and how you got into .NET and what you do now. So I'm in Houston, Texas. I was born in Houston, Texas, went to school in Houston, Texas, working in Houston, Texas, and currently in Houston, uh, Houston, Texas. And so the University of Houston is interesting because we had this, like, Microsoft came, this was 2002, and they're like, hey, .NET. And we look at it, we're like, that's nice. I know Java. How is this different? And I didn't really think too much of it at the time, but then when I started working full-time in oil and gas, we had this big kind of desktop project we were going to do. And the developer said, no, we're going to do it in .NET. I was like, okay, this sounds like a good thing to learn. And that's just kind of, all right, learn it and do it. So Visual Studio 2002, that was a VB.NET project because apparently VB.NET was better at the time. And then C-Sharp caught up, and now C-Sharp is way better at the time. <laughs> so C-Sharp is the way to go. And, and that just kind of took off. And that's what we use for a lot of projects going forward. I got into development really early age. Well, I think it was, I don't know how old it was. I was probably 10. And my dad got this computer and, you know, he's learning how to do computer stuff. And, and he found some games from his coworkers. I'm sure they were legally purchased. I'm not sure. And they were like, oh, we want to play games. He says, all right, first you have to learn it. So he gave me this book on DOS and he's like, learn this book. I'm like 10 years old. I'm like, okay, we'll do that. So turns out I get really good at it. And so whenever he is talking to friends, they say they have a computer problem. He gives the phone to me and says, Garo, you, you go ahead and figure out what's going on with this. So here's me, 10, 11, 12 years old, troubleshooting over the phone, doing tech support with all my dad's friends. So uh, fast forward. They uh, paid you, right? What is it? They paid you me? for that, right? What? <laughs> you get paid for doing this? <laughs> what? what? He's like, I, I helped you. I clothe you and I feed you. Do this tech support for me. Like, okay. I enjoyed it too. Sometimes I did too much. Because like we'd go to a family friend's house and and uh, it'd be like they have a computer and they're like oh yeah girl likes computers here he's like okay 
like, oh, stop fixing their computer. It's like, no, the memory, the memory needs to be you know, old DOS, you know, DOS uh, systems, and you have like the lower memory and the high memory and everything. I'm like, your memory is not optimized. I have to fix this. I got to defrag your hard drive. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you had 12 viruses on you. Did you know that? I can't find any frustrating than, um, than troubleshooting things like with my parents. Yeah. Like on the phone, it's just like, you know, click this button. Oh, which button is it? <laughs> is there a thing on the left hand side of the screen? Oh, yeah. I'm lucky. My, my parents, I live down the street from my parents. So if I need to, they're like, oh, hey, okay. this thing. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to walk over. This is, this is going to be yeah. easier. <laughs> but it, when it, my worst time was when my parents first got onto the internet, like really, truly. Like I got the internet first. Me and my brother did, right? So America Online, you know, and then. They get on the internet once we have cable and everything, and that's when it's like, no, you don't have a security problem. That that's a pop up. Like no, but it's telling me that there, it's detected viruses on my machine. Like it hasn't. Just close it, please. Don't click anything. I clicked it. Like why? <laughs> what? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It's funny. Most of my family has moved to Apple and Macs, mm-hmm. and I told them I don't work on Macs. I have before. I will not do it again. You're on your own. <laughs> I really have not used Apple and since the Apple two days. You know, I never really got into Macs. I, but in, in junior high and high school, it was all Apple II. Even in college, Apple II, Apple II. And then my personal computers that I bought at that time were an, an Amiga. So just for playing games and things like that. So that was a lot of fun. And then I got into video production, but it was still PCs and uh, Amigas. Nice. Actually, this is a... So this is my first MacBook of all time. I just my work laptop was just cycled out. New one came in and like, all right, well, all we got is MacBook. And I'm like, okay, let's try it out. It's been interesting. I think with with .NET where it is, talking about .NET again, with .NET where it is now, like getting it on the Mac and running it, running Rider, it's just running native on Mac OS is very clean experience so far. And we're, we're it's been a really fun time to try to take take kind of my old muscle memory of like Visual Studio and Sharper and bring it into Mac and just trying to to get it right. So we still have a lot of projects that are that are full framework. And so the VM comes on or bootcamp and full Visual Studio comes up. And so, but it, it's, it's been nice. It's been, it's not been nice. It's been a new experience that's been enriching to, to see how we shift back and forth and, and how Dynet development on Mac is actually quite good. Are you just using VS Code? No. Yeah, uh, I I tried VS Code with C Sharp. I didn't like it personally. Yeah, I thought um, this, yeah, I think C Sharp is one of those things where VS like Visual Studio still benefits. I think, but you know, hundred percent agree. Hundred percent agree with you. I think the Visual Studio definitely is the best with C Sharp, but I think Writer Writer's pretty good. I think it's they have the benefit of being able to say, okay, let's let's start over. And say, well, I want to build an IDE. I don't. I don't want to just build an IDE. I want to start from a sharper and then build file save around it, and add a text editor. And now we have mm. Writer. And suddenly, it's like the tooling has simplified to the point where you don't have to go through. So, what what is this Writer? Uh, writer R I D E R Jeff Rains. We actually we why well, I think we did an episode on this. You may not have been on there, but we actually mm-hmm. dug into how JetBrains developed Writer. Oh, um, okay. And and how it's grown and how they're they had to take resharper and their like IntelliJ and other stuff and mm. 
uh, build into their own uh, IDE. So, yeah, yeah, I actually I generally really like IntelliJ's the their IDEs actually. Years ago, I was using um WebStorm. I think they they created that. So. Yeah, for for PHP, WebStorm is was great. We have a we have a client we're working with that they they're doing a lot of Go development, and then uh, JetBrains has one called GoLand, which is their Go their Go version of the IDE. But yeah, Rider Rider's pretty good. I mean, it, it's an IDE and it works really well. And it was really easy for me to take the project I built in Visual Studio in .NET Core. It was an Azure Function project and just open it up in Rider and solution and everything, and it worked. I shouldn't sound so surprised, but <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm like, the year is 2021, and I'm able to open .NET stuff across solutions. Like, this is crazy. So uh, talking about running .NET in non-customary you know, environments, I think according to you, you don't have to use Azure to run .NET. You don't have you to had... use Azure. <laughs> I know, this is crazy, right? Yeah. You can run .NET on non-Microsoft platforms. So trivia point, I was running .NET on Linux, in some projects I was doing in uh, 2015, 14, maybe 20, 2013 to 14, we were actually running, uh, we had these embedded Linux Raspberry Pi style ARM boards, uh, they're called BeagleBone, and they ran Debian. And so, because they're running stock Debian, I can install Mono, and we we're running C-sharp code, ASP.NET web, web API running on Mono on the Raspberry, on the we call it a Raspberry Pi, more or less Raspberry Pi system. And so we built all, we developed all our stuff on Windows and then I'd compile it in Windows and then I'd just secure shell the binaries across into the device. And of course, portable PE format, they would just work. And it was great, like super productive. I didn't have to mess with a bunch of native code. And so cross-platform.net was a thing from way back, way back in the day. Now with .NET Core, it's just so much easier to, to make it across platforms. But like you said, Sean, the Azure is not really required. You can run .NET pretty much anywhere. Uh, half container will travel in a lot of ways, right? If you just have a, all the .NET 5 containers, even the 3.1 containers are all available on Microsoft's registry, which is off the Docker registry. And you just load up your code and execute in a Linux environment. So usually their Debian or even Alpine has a .NET uh, image you can use as well. So Alpine Linux is kind of lightweight Linux distribution for container-based applications. And so the base OS size is about 10 to 15 megabytes. And what I found was that that runs really well. I can run most of the .NET stuff in that small form factor. And I can run on an Azure, I can run on AWS, I can run it natively, I can run it in whatever I want. So how do you get started with .NET and in AWS? I, well, I mean, .NET was my main background is kind of where our default, you know, for projects and things. And so we had a client that all their things were in AWS. And so we needed to build an AWS application. So my first thought was, okay, well, is there something easy that I can jump into and do? Because Azure has app service and app service is very easy. If you follow the happy, you know, if you, if you do the happy path on windows and you, you upload everything exactly how the defaults are, then app service is great. Amazon didn't really have a happy path. Going through it, it's a lot of research to figure out, well, how do I deploy .NET code in Amazon, uh, in AWS, and how do I do it easily? Because we had a single ASP.NET Core application. I don't need a huge infrastructure to run this. I should be able to just run something. So what I found was Elastic Beanstalk. And AWS Elastic Beanstalk is, it's a set of patterns for 
regular application, where if you just have a single application or a few applications that need to interact with each other, it helps you build the common patterns and it sets up everything for you. So you say, this is a .NET application. I need the, well, so <laughs> it offers you a database, but the rule number one of Elastic Beanstalk is thou shalt not take the database Elastic Beanstalk offers. <laughs> so it's funny because every tutorial I read said, it has this, do not any under any circumstances use that database because if you click the wrong thing, it will decommission the database for you and rebuild it from scratch, which is never what you want to do. So that was a quick one in all the how-to guides. And so it, it will build a load balancer. It will build the EC2 instance for you, which is their compute VMs. It will manage, it builds a lot of management around it too. It's really cool stuff where it'll, it'll swap out the operating system for you and upgrade it and keep things fresh and clean, connect you to the logs. It, it just, it's app service, but you get to peek a little bit under the covers of how app service would work. So if you imagine that I have a, a virtual machine that I put in the cloud, I have a core operating system, I have .NET runtime on top of it, I have my application running on top of that, then I want to have the load balancer in front of it, I need to set up scaling rules, I need to set up logging, I need to set up kind of deploying the versions of my application. And so it, it gives you the scaffolding that it manages using the other AWS tools and does it pretty nicely. And then with Azure, like you said, if you're starting out, they make it super simple and super easy, especially like if you're using Visual Studio with the new published stuff. Oh, absolutely. But right, the, the bigger your app grows, the more you need to do, the more complicated it gets. And it can it can be a little obtuse, right? And you have to go digging. For instance, we were figuring out firewalls and uh, limiting access to Cosmos DB by using the, the IAM roles and all that stuff. Security is a beast, I think, in any platform. How does that compare to AWS or how does it work in AWS? Funny enough, I, I found AWS was easier to understand than Azure when it came to security. And I think part of it is you hear a lot about how the AWS teams are organized when they have this, I think they call it white spacing or, or segregation of the teams. And, and there's the whole, like Jeff Bezos says, thou shalt use APIs for everything. And it was, what's interesting is that it, it's very easy to see here's the APIs that the service is using and here's how it communicates between these two parts. And so you can actually learn how this one service functions. And you can observe the services it uses and see, okay, how are these things related and, and understand how it's put together. So when it comes down to security, it's very clear, like it's going to touch your API call is made. First, it's going to verify on your IAM credentials, whatever you're using to call the API, are you allowed to call that API? And then on the receiving side, it says, is this person allowed to call me? And so when both sides agree, then the API call succeeds. If they disagree, then you have you have an opaque failure that says something went wrong. Go figure it out. So there is that same you know Azure and AWS agree on that one, where it says something went wrong. Go back, go pound sand and figure it out. Come back to me when you fix it. So, but what was interesting was in AWS, once you get past that, the API stuff, and you see there's tools for you to check it. There's CloudTrail, which lets you see the API calls that are being made. And so you can see all of the services that are being called. And if you have something that errors out, you can actually troubleshoot that in a not completely easy way, but in a possible way. So uh, 
I haven't used AWS. So you're saying that when you actually make a call on, uh, or when you have an operation within the um, like their, their portal, it will actually show you the the REST API calls, is it? Yeah. Oh, that that would be really interesting. I've always wondered, like when, like in especially in the Azure portal, like if if I just create a like an app service or something, it would, it would have been really good if um, it actually shows you the actual like the CLI command or something. Because I hate going through that portal and clicking that like, multiple clicks. It'd be good if you, I can just create a. I know you can export it into a template and all that stuff, but you know that CLI is so useful. It'd be good if you just showed me the command to create a, a VM or whatever in exactly the specification I wanted. Yeah, it, it's definitely useful if you're trying to learn. Uh, so hmm. I say it's useful if you're trying to learn AWS, but first you have to learn that CloudTrail is there. You have to learn how the IAM, the Identity Access Management, works. You have to mm. know to do these things. And that's that's kind of like step zero, that when you're getting into AWS, it's it's not something that you can go into Visual Studio and say, make it all work for me. And it mm. hasn't happened. With, with AWS, you have to initiate your security settings in AWS first. So if you don't have that user set up in AWS with the access that you want, it's not going to work at all. Like it, can't, it won't communicate, nothing will work. It'll say, you need to create a user. You need to create a profile. Mm-hmm. And until you get that, you don't really know what's happening. So the developer story to get started is very different. But once mm-hmm. you get into the middle of it and you learn the basics of how IAM works in AWS, then it's a lot easier and natural to, to start troubleshooting things and to see how services work and checking permissions and policies and understanding how all these communicate. So in Azure, it's very easy to spin up a bunch of different services and have them talk to each other and not really factor in security up front, right? They, they may give you warnings to say, oh, we, we suggest you don't do this or you should do that, but you, you can go ahead and do it. So what you're saying with AWS from the get-go, they're, they're basically saying you need to make this secure or as secure as you can before you even get started. Yeah. Okay. It's a little bit weird for because you know .NET developers are used to Visual Studio and Azure and Microsoft's happy path, and it's like, oh, I'll just go ahead and do that for you. In AWS, it's okay. This is a this is a secure environment. So, if you even try to use the the main account you use to access your AWS account, if you try to use that those credentials in Visual Studio or in other places to access your account, there's a bunch of red flags like, hey, you should not be using your root account. The, your login and password to access any of these things. And every single page on AWS has that warning. It says, don't do this. Don't do this. You should not do this. And they make it hard for you to do that too, so that it's, it's, there's no question that you're doing the wrong thing. And even once you get into it to spin up resources, by default, there's no access. By default, it, it's completely locked down. I can create a VM and I can't secure shell into it. I can't talk to anything. It spins up and it says, I'm starting to bill you. Even though you can't see what's going on inside of here, I'm, you're, you're starting to pay me money. So you figure out what you need to do to actually talk to the VM. So you need to make sure you have the secure shell key pairs set up. You need to make sure the networking is set up so that you can actually go step-by-step step to talk to the, the VM. And then the VM talking to the database, same thing. The networking steps in between, you have to make sure that each step is configured so that you can have the two pieces talk to each other, which is good because it does teach you to do things the right way. It really nudges you away from the, okay, just open up all the security and just let everything talk to everybody. Just just put the database on the internet. Don't worry about it. Yeah, one of the things I did in a recent project, right, it was 
It was the opposite. And I'm not saying Azure's not secure. I'm just saying you have to go through more steps typically to to lock it down and make it secure, right? And so the team I joined had been working on a project, right? And it was head down. We got to get this stuff done. We got to get this stuff done. And then eight months later, their internal IT team did a security audit. And they're like, uh, this is a problem. This is a problem. This is open. We can access this. Which, and of course, we gave them a, basically a root account to look at everything. They're like, none of this looks right. And so we spent two months back and forth off and on tightening things up and, and securing stuff. I like the I like the perspective AWS takes once you know what you're doing. <laughs> I can imagine this frustrating in the beginning. You don't know what you're doing. It can get definitely get extremely frustrating. I know that I, I had to sit down and psych myself up to, to get back into it and say, you know, I'm an experienced developer. Like, why is this so hard? Why can't I understand how this works? Like trying to set up a cloud formation template, which is the kind of like uh, ARM templates for Azure. This is the built-in templating for Amazon, for AWS. And it's very low level. It's, okay, here's a VM. Okay, now security group rules. Okay, now I am policies and groups and, and, and all the pieces. I'm like, I, there's no way for me to tell how these pieces really fit together, just jumping into it. And so I can't start there. Luckily, there is a better option now for people getting started, which is uh, Amazon uh, has a thing called CDK, the Cloud Development Kit. And it's similar to, it's similar to uh, if you've heard of Pulumi, where you're using either TypeScript or C-sharp code or Python or JavaScript to, to create your deployment environment declaratively. And what's great about that is that with the TypeScript version, they've created a lot of blueprints, like Azure blueprints that say, hey, by the way, you're going you're gonna to create this VM. If you call this extension method, it will go ahead and set up the networking exactly how you should. And if you have a database set up in the same area and you want to connect it to, well, there's an extension method on the other one that will let you connect the two pieces together and it'll build all of the rules in between for you. And it slowly kind of helps you to understand that, oh, this, this little extension method or this extra method on here says, I can add this, this resource and it'll build the right resources to connect them. And then you can see how it actually did it by looking at the CloudFormation script that's generated and it gives you the resource list. It says, I created these three policies and these 12 networking rules and, and all this other stuff happens for you to get this connected. What about the, because um, I know Azure has got re- pretty good um, documentation, um, especially with their like the Microsoft Learn courses and things like that. Does AWS have pretty good, like a pathway that they, that they have to onboard new developers? I I tried to go through their doc- Their documentation site is very declarative. It says, this yeah. is the documentation. <laughs> this is the API call. Here are the parameters of the API call. Here's another API call. And, it's very like the developer wrote this is what it is. There are some introductory things, but I find that the introductory things still kind of get to a point and then they give you bad advice that says, <laughs> okay, now just to make this work, go ahead and turn all these rules off. And then here is your thing working. And I'm like, no, no, that's not what I want. We are, our company, uh, the company I work for, Headspring, we just started on the path of like becoming an AWS partner. And so there's a lot of partner training materials, which are great, and like certification training, which is great, which helps you do things the right way. So they have a bunch of training materials if you go uh, deeper into it, which really helps to put the the pieces together better. And they talk about IEM being the 
the core thing that you need to understand first and how to do things the right way first and then go into those details. A lot of the examples you'll find out there are going to be all Azure-based type, how to build something, how to get something ready. Is it fairly straightforward and easy to, to translate something from Azure to AWS? Translating from Azure to AWS, I I wouldn't really think of it that way. I, I would think of well, AWS. Like, as like, well. like Azure Functions, you know, if somebody says use Azure okay. Functions, well, you got to over to AWS, you got to AWS Lambda, something like that. Okay. Or, you know, you got compute versus VM. <laughs> So is is most things a one to one? So so when I when I was learning it, I thought that there was a lot of different ways to do this. But when I actually did it, I've, I've been working on AWS now for about a year and a half, and I've noticed that there's really only three ways to deploy something. In all of the different services and pieces and everything, there's really only three ways to do it, and it's actually coming down to two ways to do it. And one is Lambda. Uh, Lambda is a big one. Right? AWS Lambda is like Azure Functions, and it's effectively a container on a VM and it runs your .NET code. So it's a container deployment. And also you can deploy onto a container using the Elastic Container Service. So again, you have a, a Docker image registry and you pull your image down and you run your container in some compute environment. And then the, the last way is you spin up your own virtual machine and you deploy your code however you want to deploy your code. So if it's just you know secure shell updated or you've got it on a bucket somewhere and you just load it in. There's different ways to do that. But when you actually execute the code, it, it all executes the same way, which was really why I like AWS because it, it does make it very simple to explain that way. With Azure, I find that App Service has this like, okay, you've got Windows and there's an IS somewhere. There's some kind of function host and there's other things going on that you're not really sure. Or if you're running in the container environment, it, it, there's Kubernetes behind the scenes and you're running container instances it's a lot of different weird stuff going on. Whereas AWS says, you're, you have a container, I'm running it somewhere, and that's it. And the thing that's different is that if I run on Lambda, I have a time limit and I have a, a memory limit. If I run on Elastic Container Service, I get to decide how much I want and it's a longer running service. So if you can understand how those two models work, you can pretty much deploy any code anywhere in AWS. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it. The only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick, and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it, grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and you use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at adventuresin.net.com slash Raygun. So when it comes to the features in AWS, other resources, right? There's hundreds in Azure. 
based on your experience, do you see there to be a good bit of parity between AWS and Azure, the features that they offer or the functionality that you can can use in their clouds? Absolutely. Between Azure and AWS, the, the, main, the core services are the same. They're just named differently. So in, in AWS, you have to figure out what is it actually called. And same as in Azure, what, what do I call it in Azure? What do I call it in AWS? But if you stick to your building blocks, <clears throat> you know, you have your compute. Is it a container image or is it a function or serverless function? And then how is my database hosted? Azure SQL versus Amazon's RDS. Do I have a, a kind of more object storage, Azure storage versus S3 buckets? Do I have something more complicated like Cosmos DB and DynamoDB? So those are very similar. Cosmos DB has a lot more interesting stuff to it. And I think they, Microsoft has built a lot of really cool... So the way I see it, Cosmos DB is like Amazon has Aurora, which is their serverless database technology. And so Cosmos is like Aurora plus Dynamo had a weird love child. And it's Cosmos DB. And it's really fascinating because I did a small project on Cosmos DB and you pretty much at the start say, okay, this is the weird flavor of Cosmos DB I want to use. And then it spins up a compute that translates your your commands to Cosmos DB to use that flavor. So you can make a graph database, you can make a SQL database, you can make an object store, and it just kind of changes. Amazon has different services for this, which is, again, you got to figure out how the different parts work. But I really like the Cosmos DB approach, which is <laughs> kind of really just kind of, oh, that's really clever. I kind of like that. But yeah, feature parity between them. So the things I would go for, I need to know where my queues are. So Azure Service Bus versus SQS uh, notifications and databases and compute. So feature parity is definitely there between them. Is cost similar? I want to say it's competitive. I know that if you're trying to run Windows workloads on AWS, it's definitely more expensive. And but that's probably, that's probably the case of Azure as well, to be honest. A, a large component when you if you if you just opt for the Azure hybrid benefits and stuff, stuff like that, it's actually a lot cheaper because a lot of a large component of the compute cost is actually licensing. Yeah. Yeah, Amazon does have that same option. You can you can run it, but I, I think they end up charging a little bit of premium for Windows workloads just to just to hit Microsoft a little bit. But most of the time you don't need it. At least with Dynamo. You, you just, I you think just even in Azure, I think they're kind of pushing us into um, Linux now, like um, because of the lower costs, and I think that's kind of where Microsoft is heading. I completely agree. I've seen that too, where where they the default on like Azure pipelines for doing builds on Azure DevOps. Ubuntu latest is has many more features and cool stuff mm. that you can use than the Windows uh, base image. Like for example, we had a project where we were doing a Postgres. Uh, we had a Postgres database, and I wanted to run unit tests with the Postgres database. Well, it's pre-installed on the the hosted the Microsoft hosted Ubuntu latest image, and so in my build pipeline, I say, okay, sudo service start Postgres, wait for it to spin up, and then I run my unit tests against the Postgres database that's spun up in my build image, mm. uh, and then everything just gets ripped apart and torn off when it's done and burned to oblivion. So when somebody's first starting out, what are what are kind of the, the key things that they have to put in place to get their, you know, their hello world or their to-do app running when they're just when just learning AWS? So once you get your account set up, so to get your account set up, you need a credit card. <laughs> uh, any credit card will do. And you can spin it up right away. Once you get that, 
that because there's no there's no like trial period. There's no like, hey, like Azure has like, let me give you fifty dollars credit. You don't have to tell me anything. Amazon says no. I want to know how you're going to pay for this. So step one, figure out how you're going to pay for this. Step two is setting up your IAM user. So you need to create a, a user account that, and you can give an administrator permission to start, but you need something that's not your root account password that has an API key and a secret that you can use to make all of your other commands run. And this is fairly common to do. Uh, once you learn more, you can then tune it down and say, okay, I only need to do these four things with it. But for the most part, you want to just create a user that is an administrator of your account that can execute all the stuff that you need. So when you run your command line tools, when you go to Visual Studio, you'll use that access key, which gives Visual Studio the ability to talk to your AWS or VS Code or whatever ID you're using to look at your resources. There are, at that point, there's a few different ways to go. There is a recently announced a container-based deployment tool for, uh, that one's only JavaScript and something else based. They just announced another like developer preview. So there's a Twitter account I've been following, which is the aws.net. Let me see exactly what it is. I'll send, I'll send the link when you get a chance. So AWS has been posting a lot more .NET stuff uh, because with .NET 5, it's even easier to set up a ready-to-run instance to deploy code. So they're trying to streamline the way in which you make a container-based executable. What I do recommend, though, for people just getting started, I do recommend Elastic Beanstalk because it does walk you through a lot of settings and gives you a lot of options to see how things are deployed. And they have a native .NET solution as well, so you don't have to work with a container image. You can actually deploy your .NET code directly into Elastic Beanstalk uh, and run it natively. So I would recommend Elastic Beanstalk. If you're just getting started, I would recommend the database that's built into it. But when you start doing serious work, then your database deployment should be a completely independent, separate thing. So do you have any experience with big data or machine learning at AWS? I know Azure is pushing Synapse and their data pipelines and pretty hard. And there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with it. Do you have experience with that in AWS? I've looked at it, but I haven't, I mm -hmm. haven't done it professionally. Um, gotcha. But the stuff that I have seen was interesting in that you could tell it, it's combining the pieces of things that they have and turning it into a big data solution. So they have this, this data lake formation tool that will set up your S3 bucket storage for your, your, uh, your big data. And S3, S3 is like the everything service. Every service on AWS probably touches S3 behind the scenes one way or another. S3 is the, the blob, the object storage. And it's such a cool service. It's like the first service that they launched. And the, the more I learn about it, the cooler it is because it just, it just does everything. So you start from the blob storage and then you build on top of that with these indexing tools. And they actually have a, a technology called Athena, which will crawl, will crawl your S3 bucket. Like if you have a bunch of CSV files or parquet files or some other sort of object format, it'll crawl all those, figure out the schema, and then you can run SQL queries against it. It performs about how you expect it would, but it, it does make it possible to do interesting things with just an S3 bucket and some other technology on top. Now, with, with Visual Studio, you know, it's really easy to connect it up and do things right in Visual Studio versus Azure. Are there similar add-ins, plugins for connecting up to AWS right from Visual Studio? Mm -hmm. I haven't actually looked at that. Uh, yeah, so there is the uh, AWS Toolkit for Visual Studio. And it will install the, uh, there's also a set of templates for .NET New that are the AWS templates. 
And they're the same ones that show up in Visual Studio's new project menu, as well as the .NET new kind of command line tools. And so you have a pretty good starting point. And what they tend to do is they'll use what's called another deployment technology because everyone's got their own. They use one called serverless framework or serverless, not, serv- not serverless.com serverless, but serverless, the serverless application model that's AWS. AWS is kind of flavor of this. And what it is, is it will let you use a YAML file. Yay, YAML. <laughs> to define, <laughs> yeah, yet another YAML file. It'll let you define the services you want and also the, the core compute you have. And it'll set up a good default template for you. And then it'll trans, transpile that into CloudFormation and deploy that. And that's really like a low friction way to create individual resources as well, uh, starting from the, the templates there. But if you have an existing application that you're trying to deploy, I do recommend Elastic Beanstalk. But if you know that it's going to, if you're thinking about doing like a serverless application, then you definitely want to go with the AWS templates to start. But yeah, so VS Code has a plugin, an extension for AWS Toolkit. Visual Studio has one. Uh, Rider, I think, has one. They've been developing a lot of these things. And then also there's the command line support altogether. Very cool. What things haven't we uh, covered that we should know about AWS and, and .NET? I'm sure there's quite a bit, but you know, <laughs> a limited amount of time. But yeah, it's been an interesting journey with it because I I felt like at first that it was trying to fight me, and uh, then I realized that the, the core thing I realized was it's just a container. Lambda, just a container. ECS, just a container. Even the things I'm running on Elastic Beanstalk, it's effectively like, let me take your application, just kind of drop it into a Linux machine and simulate the fact that it's not a container, but we'll treat it like a container. And that really helps to, to kind of hone you in on what you're really doing, to think about how you would run .NET code in the cloud. But when you think about that, it's the same way you'd run any code in the cloud. It's still running in some sort of containerized environment and with isolation in place to make sure you don't touch anybody nearby. So the things that you learn for other serverless or cloud-based strategies, you would apply to .NET exactly the same way. Have you set up oh, any? Hey uh, have you set up any uh, hybrid environments where you got some things in AWS and some things on-premise? I have not done that yet, unless you call whatever running on my machine on-premise. But <laughs> <laughs> it's on my premise. I haven't set that one up. But what I found was that the the AWS networking tools let you really kind of understand how that gets set up. When I was going to the AWS training, it was really clean explanation of how your networking is configured and how you start from your virtual private cloud surrounds everything. You've got public subnets and private subnets and how these all communicate is very clean. And so it's a very well-defined way to do it. And really, if you set up your security groups the way that they should be and it allows us to write access, then it should behave the way it should. <laughs> <laughs> Keyword should. It should work. So can I borrow one of your credit cards just for a minute? Oh, yeah. So I, I, know, go my, take my a card. I got my company card right here. I'm sure it'll be fine. Because <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm, I'm so used to to Azure giving me a little bit here and I can I can take a little bit there and, and you know, paying pennies on the dollar. I'm going to need to find a credit card to test this out. <laughs> so when you do sign up for an AWS account, you do get access to what's called free tier for the first year. And there's some things that are forever free and some things that are free for the first year. And so there's a lot, there's a lot of, you get a lot of flex with that that you can do for the first year 
And like I was, I was doing some, I have like kind of some other things running on my AWS account and it's been more than a year. And so I think every once in a while I get billed like a dollar, a dollar and 60 cents. And I was like, oh yeah, that thing's still running out there. But AWS billing tools are top notch. You can really see, you can really see the details of what's running in services. The thing that's not top notch is when they start billing you for network transfer between the cloud and people and between regions as well. And there's a little bit of black voodoo magic that happens there. But <laughs> if, you can, if you can get over that part, then it's pretty straightforward. It kind of sounds like the DATs or whatever, DAUs that Azure is using. Because <laughs> that, that has been one of the biggest sticking points with like my boss or clients. It's like, well, how much is this going to cost? Yeah. Like, we'll, 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 have it, we'll have a good idea after the first couple of months. <laughs> right. right, exactly. So, and it's funny because AWS gives you that same advice. They're like, they're like, try it out, see how it works, and then you'll know how much it's going to cost. It's like, wait, you can't tell me. It's like, no. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know that they're are they're on the same page there. <laughs> exactly. So, are there are there emulators you can run locally? You know, kind of like, there's some of the Azure stuff you can run locally in, in an emulator. So AWS has this. I don't know. If it's not. It's kind of an unofficial project, but it's called Local Stack. And since AWS publishes their APIs, people have taken these APIs and created a, an emulator that runs a, a large number of services of AWS containerized locally in your system. And so it's, it's a good enough equivalent to run testing and some, some uh, end-to-end testing and some unit testing like that. So you can spin up the local stack, configure the pieces you want to configure, and then run your code against it. And it should be equivalent. Yeah, I use the uh, Azure Storage Explorer. Well, when I was a .NET project, I used it almost every day, right? So that's good to know. I think that's one of the good things about um, Azure Functions, actually, the fact that you can just basically download their local instance and start running it off there. just means debugging is a whole lot easier. Yeah, I know Azure has some... I know that I work with uh, Jimmy Bogart a lot. I know he's been complaining a lot about the Azure Service Bus does not have a local story at all, ever. Mm. And you just, it just, there's no way to run it locally. There's no way to test true, it actually, yeah. on the cloud. Mm. Maybe more and more stuff. I think there was saying, I think logic apps now you can run um, locally, which is an interesting concept, I think. Yeah. So. The Azure Compute Emulator lets you run, I mean, at least with the .NET code, everything just runs. Mm. So if you're running yeah. Azure Functions or logic apps, whatever, it's, it's the new runtime. So, the, so Azure Net 5 is really just running an isolated process. It's just a worker. So it runs the same locally as it does in the cloud. In AWS, everything is that. So there's only one way to run. There's no, there's no kind of weird stuff around it. It just says, okay, here's, give me an entry point. I'm going to call your code. I did a really weird thing recently. I wrote a bit about it in a blog post, and I've been using it at a project. And so I took, uh, there's, there is a library support for this, which is take your ASP.NET Core pipeline and run it in a Lambda function behind an API gateway. And so what it does is when the Lambda spins up, it boots up your ASP.NET Core application. And then it executes one request at a time on that instance. And so as you need more of it, it will use, it'll reuse the runtimes, uh, the, the running instances of the Lambda to execute your parallel requests. And as you don't need it, it will let them spin down. And then using, so what you've got now is that you've got it scaling out to whatever you need up and down and using the Lambda infrastructure to run it. So positive is that 
you can spin down to zero if you need to. Your application can go completely dormant. Downside is that when you do spin back up, you pay the cold start cost. And currently, if you're using Entity Framework Core, that cold start cost is expensive because it's spinning up all of your objects. There's a bunch of things that it does at boot time to spin up all of your uh, your kind of dynamically compiled things. And I thought they're working on, I saw some blog posts for EF Core 6 that they're working on a on a, a source generator or something that pre, pre-creates all that stuff for you at build time, which would be great. And then also any reflection you do is just going to be expensive whenever you have your Lambda spinning up. So the more you can get reflection free, the more you can do ready to run, your, your startup time is going to improve quite a bit. But if you can't, then running as a container, a long running container instance is a, is a great alternative. Downside is running all the time. Upside is running all the time. Is it the blog post you did for uh, C Sharp Advent? Exactly. It's that one. I was planning to do a, uh, for the Houston Data user group, I was going to present about it as well to kind of say like, okay, now this was back in December, 2020. Now, after running this in an application for a while, what <laughs> what was my opinion now about running it this way? And th- there's some quirks to it, but overall, I felt like it was a really fun way to run an ASP.NET Core application. I think I would like it better if I'm using DynamoDB or some sort of lighter weight database rather than EF Core with a SQL database. I feel like the startup time would be a lot better. It'd feel a lot more serverless, air quotes serverless, hmm. and it would it would be a better example altogether. So I'm hoping to to show that a bit more. All right. Any other questions before we move on to picks? I'm still still waiting for the credit card. Oh, yeah? <laughs> All right. Uh, send me an email. I'll go ahead and email it to you. Perfect. <laughs> but you're going to have to... The way it works is you send me a credit card first, and then I'm going to put mine on top of it, and then send it back okay. to you. Okay. Okay. Let me see what I can do. Yeah. I'm, I, I may be able to to, <laughs> to figure something out. <laughs> I can't guarantee you the number makes sense, but it's going to look like a credit card. <laughs> there you go. Can you pay in Dogecoin? <laughs> I don't know, actually. I suppose if you can buy things on Amazon with Dogecoin, then you could probably pay for AWS with Dogecoin. Uh, I don't know if Bezos, you know, wants to, you know, <laughs> get on the on that train with Elon. <laughs> Maybe I can write a check and mail it to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. 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 That's even better. Old school. <laughs> All right. I'm going to push you into picks. Feel mm-hmm. good. All right. Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit, and you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. I'll go first this week. This week, I was faced with a difficult CSS issue, and I'm sure the only one 
that's ever had a difficult CSS issue is me. So <laughs> it was dealing with, I had some uh, dynamic lists and I wanted them to have a scroll bar on them, but I wanted them to resize themselves based on the size of the screen, actually really the size of the page. And I kept on trying to do different things. I was trying to, to figure out using the calc function with max height on my list and things like that. And it just wasn't working right. It just wasn't working right. So I finally found an article out there that, that showed me what the issue was. And it dealt with that I was using Flexbox at the same time. And Flexbox, even though you set max height, it also messes with min height. So you have to specify min heights as well to get the scroll bar. And then, of course, all the parents, all the web page have to be 100% height and all that kind of stuff. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a guy that wrote a bunch of different articles that are really well uh, written and lots of handy stuff in there about CSS. So that's my pick for this week. All right, Caleb, what's your pick? So my pick this week is also work-related so to speak. I don't think I've done this one before, but I have a Kensington vertical wireless trackball, right? And and I don't have carpal tunnel, but I have had issues with soreness or pain in my wrists. And of course, you know, sitting in the chair and, and all that stuff. So bought things to try to fix that. I've been using this thing for six months or so, and I don't have wrist pain anymore. It's very odd looking. And you have to get used to using a trackball if you haven't used one before. But it's it's been great. So that is my pick. It's the Kensington Pro Fit Ergo Vertical Wireless Trackball. And that is a mouthful. <laughs> cool. All right, why? what do you got? Actually, mine's also work-related. So I actually got one half of my Azure Solutions Architect accreditation early in the week. It's good. And I thought I'd recommend the... Um, the, the Udemy course that I that I took, I thought um, the guy who who um, who ran the course was, you know, he explained things. Uh, his accent was a little strong, but um, he explained things really well, and he he kind of had the right content um, that allowed you to actually pass the exam. So I think his name is Alan Rodriguez, um, and yeah, he's on Udemy. So yeah, I thought um, basically with his assistance in the Microsoft Learns articles, I was able to pass the exam pretty easily. Cool. Congrats. Here, here. Mm-hmm. Now got to do the second one now. So Right, the second part. <laughs> yeah. And start over. Do it again in two years. That's right, yeah. I've well, got this thing now where you don't have to do it. I think you've got to do it like another Microsoft Learn thing. So it's good. You Otherwise, you renew it. Renew it now, right? I think you've got to do some Microsoft Learn course to renew it. But right. I don't think they've released what that means yet. So I don't know <laughs> if it's just run through a tutorial when they can renew it or it's like another exam. But you don't have to pay that extra like $100 US which is to take the exam again. All right. Girl, you have a pick for us? I do. So I recently became a parent as an A-parent, not a parent. And uh, I was looking for... Yeah, I know. So I'm looking for... I was looking for an app that would help me track what goes in and out of the child. And I found a good one. It's called Ovia... Let me make sure I get it right. Ovia, O-V-I-A Parenting. And... It's pretty good. I wanted something that I could share so my wife would actually log in as well. And then so if she added stuff and I added stuff and we could sync it all between phones and devices. And so it's been really nice because it gives you like a little bit of like, hey, your kid is this old now. So you should be looking for these things. And 
you know, tracking when things happen. Because a lot of times you're trying to, did we feed the child? When did we last feed the child? How much does the child consume? And has the child gotten rid of it? And so these important questions have to be answered in that order. So it's been really great to, to use this to share back and forth and say, so if I'm on night shift and she's on day shift or whatever, then she can check it out and be like, okay, he fed the child. Good. This, this, this guy's husband material still. I will retain this, him. Yeah, this when is you something first said only that, all I could think of is, would appreciate. Yeah. yeah when <laughs> right. you first said, said that, it's like, well, <laughs> food goes in, the pee and poop come out. <laughs> But I can appreciate that because I'm a parent. I get it. I get it. We're we're dealing with one of those things right now. Stuff's going in and it's not coming out. We're trying to feed them different stuff. <laughs> so. And I'm in Houston, so a lot of, there, there may be an oil and gas audience to this. So this is a material balance equation that we're solving here, right? So what goes into the system is processed. We have to measure what comes out, look at the efficiency to make sure that things are coming out that should come out, and to make sure that enough's going in to keep the system running. So. All you oil and gas people out there, you're welcome. And That's a developer go, for you. Things come out both ends. <laughs> people, we're hey. sorry. If you made it this far <laughs> and you don't have kids, you know, bless you. I keep telling my daughter, it's a good thing you're cute, okay, after she spits up on me. <laughs> All right, great. Thanks, Garo. That was a good discussion. If the listeners have questions or want to reach out to you, how can they get in touch with you? So I'm on Twitter. Garo Yeri is my Twitter handle, my GitHub ID, my blog site, and pretty much uh, LinkedIn as well. So if you reach me on social, uh, you can look me up, hit me up, send a message. If you have questions, I'll do my best to answer them. If I don't know, I'll tell you I don't know. <laughs> That's always the best route. It depends. Instead of trying to make something up. <laughs> it depends. As a consultant, my two favorite words of all time. All right. If our listeners have questions for the show, they have feedback, get in touch with me. I am on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. I had a little bit extra there. (laughs) Just because. And I am Caleb Wells Coach. Great. Thanks, guys. Great show. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invite. All right. We'll catch everybody on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Bye, y'all. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.